Well, fathers, we reach for our Bibles and take and open them. May you have great freedom and liberty through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to take your word and use it as you do so often to poke and to prod and to teach, to grow us, that you would mature your church and that you would purify your church, that we would indeed be the testimony of the glory of Christ in this lost world that we must be in these days. We commit ourselves, Lord, now to the hearing of your word and then the follow-through of obedience through the strength of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1839, and for the first time in the history of the world, a photograph was taken. It took only 11 years, remarkably enough, following this incredible invention of picture-taking, that the word pornographer had to be added to our English dictionary in the year of 1850. Just over 100 years after that, in 1953, a man named Hugh Hefner took picture-taking and the publishing world and combined them and took them places they had never been before, taking it to a whole new level when he distributed his first edition of the Playboy magazine. It was scandalous. It was considered sleazy by decent people everywhere. And it caught on like wildfire. In the hotbed of the social unrest and rebellion of the 1960s, the sexual revolution was launched and nothing has ever been the same since. I am confident, as we look then at the next 50 years, that not even Hugh Hefner, in all of his perverse and wild imaginations, would have predicted that just three years ago in 2008, the internet domain name sex.com, all by itself, without any pictures, was valued at $65 million dollars. I doubt that Hugh Hefner had any imagination when he began to publish his magazine that he was launching in a whole new way the availability of lust. And in 2008, the number was 30,000 people every second connecting to the World Wide Web to view pornography. I have no doubt that that is already an incredibly obsolete number, perhaps even a minuscule number, just three years later in 2011. In the United States alone, a pornographic video is professionally produced every 39 minutes. This insatiable desire for viewing and participating in sexual activity has continued to create more new words for our dictionary. Words like sexting, friends with benefits, a phrase like virtual relationship. And now with the 
seemingly harmless click of the cursor on two light blue little words, click here, virtual infidelity is available to all. And let me say that if you think that this is an issue that is only a problem outside of the church, you need to guess again, you're naive. The statistics are difficult to ascertain. I suspect that they are lower than what some of the surveys show. An example is that a few years ago, at a Promise Keepers Christian men's gathering, they tried to take an accurate survey and get men to talk to them, What their survey showed at that time was that 50% of all the men in attendance at their event had viewed pornography that week. Interestingly enough, and this is also a dated survey a couple years ago already, the readership of Today's Christian Woman, a publication for ladies, tried to take a survey of Christian women What they found was that 30% of their readership, all female, admitted to intentionally accessing, accessing internet porn. Recent surveys and attempts at trying to determine the extent of this kind of matter seems to show that it is absolutely not in decline in any way. In the past few years, with the nearly total saturation of our homes with internet and cable and cell phone access. It means that our lives are saturated to the fullest with the availability of porn on demand. And to the glaring temptation of this material piped into our homes at high speed, the widespread acceptance in Christian homes today of another issue is of great concern as well. I don't know what else to call it other than soft porn. It can only be described as a shameless tolerance in our homes, if not to be defined as an insatiable appetite. I'm talking about our lust for sensual TV viewing, our craving for sensual novels, our extensive pleasure and involvement in movies both purchased and brought into our homes and then those that we purposely pay for and go see on a night out. It is absolutely no wonder, is it, that we have a problem with moral purity in our homes and in our churches. Once again this week, I'm not talking about the world. That's a joke. You can put a blinking sign right on the road. You can drive around and stretch limos in the middle of the daylight. They are shameless, they are disgusting, and they are lost. What else would you expect? The world is lost. I have no preconceived notion that my preaching this notion will change our community. I stand before you again this week as a pastor calling his congregation to righteousness. I am speaking to the church today. I am speaking to Christian men, first and foremost. But we would be naive to think that this is not also a female issue as well. It is certainly a youth issue, and I pity our young men and women growing up in this 
pornified culture in which we live. By now you know that I've entitled these three weeks, this little mini-series, Culture in Crisis. We're asking the question today as to whether or not it is even possible to live a pure life with the downgrade and pornification of our entire culture and society. We use the word assimilation, impression, taking on the impact of the world around us. We are being imprinted by our culture. We are being lulled into a complacency that has taken righteous, godly, holy living, minimized it simply to feed the desires of our flesh. It's a time for the church to be honest. It's a time for men to tell themselves the truth. It's a time for women to tell themselves the truth. I would invite you this morning to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we ask and answer the question, is purity possible? And what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, I need to tell you that the Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, so much so that I um, struggled in knowing what not to say. There are so many relevant passages and verses and scriptures. You need to know that this is not a new problem. The word that we get our English word pornography from is actually a word that is used repeatedly in the New Testament. It's even used in the passage today of 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a Greek word in the form of pornania. Porn, pornania. It, it means illicit sexual behavior. It's also not a new problem, nor is it a new word, but you need to know that there are New Testament churches that were couched in, in dramatically corrupt cultures. Corinth, for example. Corinth was wild with sensual pleasure. Thessalonica, the city in which the believers lived, in which the Apostle Paul is writing this first letter, 1 Thessalonians, we're in chapter 4. Not only was the culture corrupt, not only was it an incredibly uh, in a world incredibly dominated by men, therefore all of the fallout of that, there was the, there was the minimization of women, the minimization of the wifely role. It was common for men to have concubines, for men to seek pleasure, even wide open on the city square, without shame. They were a shameless people. Not only that, in the culture and in this context, you need to know that even their religious, accepted religious practices adulated and lifted up the flesh. Temple prostitutes were common in the city. Men would come and go and be seen with them. It was totally acceptable. It was even built into the fabric of their worship. You cannot say that it's worse today than it was then. What does the Bible have to say in the answer to the question, is it possible to live a pure life? The answer is, absolutely! Not only is it possible, it is expected. Not only is it expected, it's commanded. And God never tells us to do something that we can't do. Through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. One of the things we need to understand early on, in case you haven't figured it out, Christians don't fit into the world. And if you do fit into this world system, you're doing something wrong with your Christianity. If you are comfortable in this world and you love the world, and you love the system of this world, 
And you kind of worry about going to heaven because you have to leave this world behind. You better do some soul searching because you are not following Christ. Jesus clearly said that Christ followers are despised by the world. Christ followers don't fit into the world. We don't think like the world. We're aliens and strangers. We're pilgrims on a journey. This is not our home. This is not our city. We have a city on a distant hill. In the meantime, the battle rages. Our problem is we want a life of ease. We want a life of pleasure. We want a life of self-gratification. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll use this for our text this morning. I trust that if you're taking notes, it'll be beneficial to you. I found in the early service that um, um, I surprised myself by not being able to finish my message this morning. And um, I totally confused myself. Uh, but um, what I decided, even as I preached this morning, was that I will make... Uh, an extensive copy of my notes this morning available by next Sunday morning because here's what I want you to do. Before class is over here, I'm going to give you homework. Especially the men of our church, I want you to take the notes. I want you to tuck it in the back of your Bible. And I want you to spend some time, maybe even hours, maybe even days, studying through the passages that are going to be included in the notes that I will never get to today. And I want you to process this topic with a sense of urgency as though your very survival depends upon it, because it does. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Let's just stop there for a minute, and then we'll read the text. I'm particularly going to look at verses 3 through 7. I want to read verses 1 through 8. But did you notice that the Apostle Paul starts in, and as he's wrapping up this letter, he says, Finally, brethren, uh, I want to talk to you about something. I've instructed you how to live in order to please God. Implicit in that statement is this, that it is possible to live in such a way that does not please God. Now I want to get something out in the open and clear because we live in a, in a time when in evangelical world and in church world that if you try to tell people how they're supposed to live their lives, you are called a legalist. And we love to celebrate grace. I want to tell you that the Apostle Paul did not believe that. That the Apostle Paul was not afraid to say, do this and don't do that. And I'm here to to reflect his words and to teach what we've been taught through his teaching, which he's going to say is built on the teachings of Christ. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you cannot live however you want to live. You do not have that kind of freedom in the Christian life. And the very same grace, the Apostle Paul said in Titus chapter 2, that saves us, this same grace, he said, that brings salvation also teaches us, Titus 2.11, to say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasure and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You know what that tells me? That we're all about grace. We're all about undeserved merit and favor in receiving our salvation. And it is God, through His grace, who the same kind of grace that saved you when you didn't deserve it, is the same kind of grace that can empower you to say no to the lust and the ungodly habits and the sinful desires and the draw for worldly pleasures and teach you to live in a self-disciplined, upright, godly manner today. That's grace. That's not legalism. And it will mean saying 
no to certain things about your world. The Apostle Paul says, I've instructed you how to live in order to please God, parenthesis, so that you won't live in a way that doesn't please God, as in fact you are living, back to our text. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus. Notice his language. He's speaking in a, with, with a, a sense of great energy and urgency. I urge you, this is important in the Lord Jesus, to do this more and more. Listen. We are, we are to be conforming to the image of Christ. We are not to be being pressed into the mold of the world. The opposite is true. As God's work of grace through our salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness, more and more we will look like Christ. You have to be asking yourself, is that me? Do I care? For you know, verse 2, what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. There it is. I am only teaching you, the Apostle Paul says, what the Lord Jesus taught us. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and we have warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I say, wow, that is a strong passage. It's a warning passage, isn't it? It's a confrontive passage, and it's an instructive passage. What does the Apostle Paul say? What does God's Word say? Is it possible to live a pure life in this pornified world? Absolutely. Not only that, it's commanded and it's expected. But listen to me. If you're going to do it, if you're going to live a pure, pure life... You have to engage in the battle, and you're going to have to fight for it, and you're going to have to care about it, and you're going to have to never let your guard down, and you're going to have to really get serious. And the Apostle Paul gives us ten things in this passage that I want to click off. Ten things that you have to really get serious about. Ten key spiritual issues about which you'd better get serious. How's that for a sermon title? Ten key spiritual issues about which you'd better get serious, parentheses, so that you can live a pure life in Christ. The first thing you need to know in this passage, as the Apostle Paul is talking about sexual sensuality, he's talking about sexual imagery, he's talking about the physical acts between men, women, combined gender, even animals that was present in Thessalonica. It was a base and corrupt culture. He's talking about the physical act, but he's talking about the very base lust drive of the flesh that makes one desire this kind of imagination, this kind of fantasy, that arouses the body, that brings a sense of gratification, however incomplete it might be. And he's teaching that there are limitations to what the believer can do and what he can't do. 
The first thing you need to get serious about, if you're going to live a pure life in our pornified world, is number one, you better get serious about God's will. You had better get serious about God's will. Look what he says, verse 3. I know the Bible's hard to understand, but in the Greek, this is what it means. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. There it is. It's God's will. And God, God didn't leave gray areas, did he? This is an old commandment. This is based on an old commandment. It goes clear back to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, remember what he said? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his deer rifle, his swimming pool, or his wife. And you know, I don't know, it doesn't really say in between the lines, but I don't think he's talking about our real bothersome problem we have coveting my neighbor's wife because she can cook so well. I think there's other things he's talking about here. He's talking about the imagination of the heart. He's talking about my ability in my mind to look at something that is not mine, that is unlawful, that is off limits, and I can sin by wanting it in an inappropriate way, even though I never touch it. Jesus built on the Ten Commandment teaching, didn't he, in the New Testament, and he raises the bar to a whole new level. In Matthew chapter 5 uh, and verse 27, you do not have to turn there, Jesus is uh, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he said, you have heard it said, because the Pharisees really emphasized the letter of the law, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Okay, so they made up all kinds of rules that we could do this, 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 and this, and it's not adultery. You know, it's a little bit like, I have never had it with that woman. You know, we make up our own rules. And Jesus said, no, 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 wait a minute. Don't play games. I'm here to tell you that when a man, he said, do, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In his heart. What does that mean? That means that the imaginations and the fantasies and the hidden desires that are secretly embedded in the heart of a man or even a woman or a young person can be in the eyes of God an equal sin to the act. And some people will say, well, if I think it, I might as well go ahead and do it. No, you're trying to rationalize your sin. You're not trying to live a holy life. That's the way a man of the world thinks. A man of God is afraid and frightened for all that can go on in the hidden recesses of his heart. And he regularly wants the light of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to expose him for his own weaknesses. Lest he cave. Colossians chapter 3 goes into detail on this. Let's skip it. I'll include that in my notes. It is a powerful passage again. Again, I told you that it's, it's difficult to know what not to look up. But clearly, we're building a case for Paul's words here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 that it is God's will. What is God's will? It is God's will that we not be turned towards the lust of the flesh, specifically speaking of sexuality. That, that our hearts be given over to holiness and purity and that we are convinced that this is a matter of God's will, so I have to care about it. Second thing we need to care about is our sanctification. This builds on the very, uh, the very reality of our salvation. 
Number two, we better care about sanctification. Look what he says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Okay, so it is God's will that I should be sanctified so that I can avoid sexual immorality. To be sanctified means to be separated from my sin and given over or set apart to holy living. I remind you that he's speaking this to the Thessalonican believers, Thessalonian believers, and that they lived in a base and corrupt society. And he's saying, you need to live a sanctified life, a life that's separated from your sinfulness. So one of the things this reminds us of is that the battle is partly involving, uh, the victory of the battle is partly has to do with the gospel. It is the gospel that cleanses us. It is the gospel that convicts us of our sinfulness. It is the gospel that points us to a Christ who carried this kind of sin to the cross. And so that's why I can't sit on the couch in my living room and look at the screen of whatever electronic device I'm using at the time and celebrate and enjoy and long to participate in an imaginary act that put Jesus on the cross. Because I'm sanctified, I'm separated out from that. Thirdly, the very word separation comes to mind. As he says, not only is it God's will that you better care about, you better care about your sanctification, that is, living a holy life in Christ. It's like this. When's the last time you thought about it? When's the last time you thought about living holy? I don't know, man. I ain't no, like, Jesuit priest or something. No, you, you, you are, though, the temple of the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, you're part of His church, and you're called to be pure and spotless and blameless. So you have to think every day about your responsibility to be holy. Today, I turn away from sin, and I turn towards a holy life in Christ. I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of my faith. Number three means that there are some actual points of separation that have to happen. Look what he says in our text. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid, get that? Avoid sexual immorality. That means that I have to remove myself from certain situations. By the way, the phrase, the two words translated into English in our NIV Bible Sexual immorality is one instance where the word porneia is used in the Greek language. The idea of a porn, the porn word is used. That was translated sexual immorality. It is somewhat of a broad word, including all kinds of sexual immoral acts that would defile the sanctity and the purity of the marriage bed. We are to avoid. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 for just a minute. You don't have to turn far. If you back up about six pages, you will come to Ephesians chapter 5. Maybe, yeah, about six pages to your left in your Bible. You will come to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to build on this concept of the things that we need to avoid. That is, if I'm a Christian, there are certain things I just cannot do. There are certain places I cannot go. You say, oh, Pastor Van, there you go, making up your rules again. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor at Independent Bible Church and I drove this old Chevy pickup truck and I always got gas at this certain gas station and I knew that if I went into the gas station on this side of the counter, I would be able to look down through and see the covers of all their magazines lying on the shelf down below. And if I went on the other side of the counter, I couldn't see them. So you know the kind of games that you play? Well, I'll just go in and I'll go to the other side. No, you know what you do? You find a new gas station. Look what he says in Ephesians 5. This is powerful teaching. But among you, look what he says. But among you, Ephesians 5, 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Oh, that means that I can enjoy God's beautiful creation. God did a great thing when he created a woman, didn't he? Men? Absolutely. Amen and amen. All right? It's not good for the man to be alone. And one of the great wonders of the world, Solomon said, is the way of a man with a maiden. Listen, you need to understand that I am not talking to a bunch of perverts here this morning. I'm not, I don't believe I'm talking to a bunch of men who are, who are somehow messed up. I'm talking about men with normal, God-given sexuality who live in a world that wants to take, under the groaning of the curse of all creation, take God-given gifts and God-designed elements of our lives and take and turn them and twist them into something they were never intended to be, but because of sin, it's there and it's always there and it always wants to tear down and destroy. It always wants to taint. It always wants to pollute. He said, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. That word impurity, translated into English here, is from a Greek word that means a, a, a whole gamut of corrupt or corruptible kinds of things. Things that are perverse and base. Of greed, because, look what it says, these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, Coarse joking, which is almost always sexual, isn't it? Which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Notice he goes on in verse 5, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. In other words, those are the dynamics of an unsaved person. Those are the qualities and characteristics of a person who doesn't know Christ, who's not going to heaven. Why would I, in my sanctified state, where I'm to be growing in my sanctification, not avoid the things that are identified with corruption and sinfulness and the damnation of hell? Look what he says. Just let your eyes go down to verse 12. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Is that the pornographer or what? Why would you pay money to bring home a video, to put in your DVD player, just because it's a good story, to watch people participate in things that they do in hidden away places because they're shameful. There's a reason that God put clothes on Adam and Eve. You're not supposed to look at the nakedness of other people. You need to stop making excuses. You need to stop saying, I'm living a holy life in Christ. I'm sanctified. And, and then you don't avoid, obviously, pornographic situations. You say, Pastor Van, you don't understand storytelling. No, I don't. Meet me in my office and explain it to me later, please. But don't bring pictures, because I can't handle it. I don't even want to handle it. 
See, I, what I think is that a bunch of us have gotten caught up into the entertainment mindset of the world and we are embarrassed to be some kind of Amish Christian walking around separated from the sinfulness of our world. And that doesn't mean you've got to dress funny. That doesn't mean you can't be cool and go fishing and do whatever. But it means you don't talk certain ways. It means you don't look at certain things. And it certainly means you don't go out for an evening of entertainment and pay money to enjoy sin. And to feed the imagery of your mind. Why would you do that? You have to avoid it. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. So, I have to care deeply and get serious about knowing God's will, about the doctrine of sanctification, about separation, that is, avoiding things. All of that wraps up into number four, which is simple. It's a matter of number four, obedience. Obedience. I'm either doing it or I'm not doing it. If I am indulging in, in pornographic viewing, if I'm indulging in, in uh, lustful thinking, even if I make them up in the imagination of my own mind in a lustful, corrupt way, in a way that is inappropriate, thinking about unlawful relationships, that's disobedience. We've got to care about obedience. Fifthly, Self-control enters the picture. This is Ephesians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse A. Look, uh, 4a. Look what he says. That you should avoid, okay, that's separation, sexual immorality, the very physical act, but now he's going to talk about even the passionate lusts, that each of you, verse 4, should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. That is nothing other than the element of self-control. Boy, we live in a world doesn't like this, right? We live in a world that says, you take care of yourself, old buddy. You deserve it. You've worked hard today. You, you, you know, and here's something else. That wife of mine, if she would just be what she ought to be, I wouldn't have all these problems. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I want to make something really clear. I am not excusing, and we don't have time for this topic. It's a huge topic. And in fact, um, ministries like um, Marriage Weekends with Family Life Today do a really good job of addressing some of these things. I am not excusing the disobedience of 1 Corinthians 7 where you withhold your body from your partner. That is sin. Okay? But men, I want you to listen closely to me because I want to tell you something. I don't know if you've ever heard from a pulpit or not. But sex is not a necessity. You can live without it. And regardless of how limited your sex life is, you are not allowed to disobey God. You are not allowed to use the limitations of a frustrating marriage bed in any way, shape, or form to feed the lust of your flesh with an unlawful picture world or any other kind of behavior that fits the category. What you have to do is you have to do number four and number, number five and number six. Number four is obedience. You have to do that too. But number five is self-control, and it's based on number six, spirit control. We'll talk about that in just a second. But what we have to do is you have to understand, another person cannot make me sin. I choose to sin. 
Another person cannot take away my joy. Another person cannot remove my focus from Christ. This is a hard teaching. And I am, again, I'm not making excuses for relationships that need to be paid attention to. And perhaps one of the reasons that your wife is not maybe where you want her to be or what you want her to be is because she knows of what you're doing in the secret places. And she's disgusted and frustrated by you. But I'm telling you that you, can, you have to stop making excuses. I want to tell you a little point about self-control that my dad taught me. My dad had a saying and he said, Van, if a man can control his appetite for food, he can control any other appetite he has. If a man can control his appetite for food, he can control any other appetite he has. So men, I have a little homework for you. You know how you like to do your thing? You go on your way home from work. You stop at Sheets to get gas. And Sheets, you know your thing at Sheets. You got to go get a Mountain Dew and one of those 88-cent apple pies. I'm not sure why I know they're 88 cents and what they are. (laughs) They're the second row over halfway down. (laughs) And you know how when you're pulling into your gas station, you say, man, I'm going to get me one of them apple pies. After all, I deserve it. I've worked hard today. I'm tired. I'm tired and... That woman of mine been sitting around reading her novels. She won't even have supper ready. That's not a reflection on Janet. She has beautiful supper ready. She always reminds me when I go home, people must think you're married to somebody. My illustration, that is not Janet. You don't need a good supper. Eat at Janet's table. It's great. Here's what you do. You pull in. You say to yourself, going to get me an apple pie. And then you say to yourself, no, you know what? Right now, hungry, tired, abused, beat down, neglected, poor old me. It's a great chance for me to go back to the water fountain, get a sip of water and get back in my truck and go home and don't buy my Mountain Dew and my apple pie just to deny the flesh. You say, that is weird. I'm telling you, it's not weird. Because I'm telling you, listen, in all seriousness, I'm telling you, you cannot turn down a little 88-cent apple pie. You will never turn your gaze away from what is improper. And you better let the Spirit of God be at work in you, and you better care about this stuff. You better care about God's will, and you better care about sanctification, and you better care about separation and avoiding the places that you shouldn't go, and obedience and self-control. And then he builds on self-control. Number six is spirit control. That's nothing other than a fruit of the Spirit, right? That's Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. We'll not turn there. You can write it down, and I'll include it in your notes for your personal study. You meditate through it. Because listen, the bottom line is, there is no one that can help you with this but you. No one can make you do right. I cannot follow you around with a Louisville slugger 24-7 and drill you up behind the ear every time you turn your head the wrong direction. No one can do it. And so you're going to have to do it out of compulsion and desire for holy living before a holy God with Christ in you saying, I will be a man of God today. That's it. And I'm going to fight the battle. Yes, there are some things we can do and accountability is one of them. It was interesting to me on this point where we understand that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Galatians 5. A guy named Steve Gallagher in my Christianity Today magazine that's just a few months old. Oh, actually, it's a couple years old. I thought it was newer than that. 2008, March 2008. Cover title, 
addicted to sex. Christianity Today is a magazine that represents a broad spectrum of Christendom across our country, and I take it so that I have a sense of what's going on around the country in churches and so forth. Addicted to sex, many men are and what to do about it. They're talking about what works to get over it. What can you do to get out of it? A guy named Steve Gallagher, who was addicted to sex, wrote a book. It's called At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry. And he started a, a group, a, a, a ministry called Pure Life Ministries in 1986. He's talking about the fact that he's not very enthusiastic about introspective psychotherapy. Gallagher, 53, believes support groups encourage participants to keep that particular sin in the forefront of their identity even years after recovery. He says, quote, Biblical accountability was never meant to be a group of men sitting in a circle discussing their failures. Most men, he believes, aren't willing to sever old habits that lead to sin. Let me read that again. Most men, he believes, aren't willing to sever old habits that lead to sin, such as watching whatever they want on television. He goes on to say, a man can go to psychologists, support groups, or deliverance services. He writes this in the altar of sexual idolatry. He can be prayed for by a famous evangelist, or he can commit himself to a sexual addiction clinic. But if he wants to overcome habitual sin, he must learn to walk in the Spirit. I agree with that. I'm not minimizing the importance of godly friendships and accountability of godly men around you, but I'm telling you, you've got to get the victory over sin. Counseling will never cure you. You've got to figure out how to grow in the Christian life and become filled with the Spirit that is controlled by the Spirit so that you can have the self-discipline that the filling of the Spirit brings. And I'm not talking about some kind of begging Him on. I'm talking about simply walking in obedience so that the Spirit of God equips you with the strength to say no, because Paul said in 2 Corinthians, there is no temptation, but what has taken you is common unto men. But God is faithful, and He will with the temptation allow a way of deliverance and escape. You better care about spirit control. You better care about Christ-likeness Let's quickly wrap up our list of ten here. Verse 5. You are, at the end of verse 4, you are to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. You know what I see there? I see the contrast of Christ's likeness versus a pagan. You are not, as a Christian man, to in any way emulate or simulate or be like your pagan buddies. It doesn't have to happen. By the way, I've always thought that there's two things, and I've experienced this over and over again in my growing up years. In high school, on sports teams, working on a dairy farm for four years with a bunch of pot-smoking pagan hippies, pagan to the core. Two things. Number one. Don't talk like that. They talk and don't look at what they look at and they will automatically know that something's different about you and they will talk to you about Jesus eventually. So, what's wrong with you, Marceau? I remember Dennis Watson, our tuba player in band camp. I tell this story to kids all the time when I speak at camps and retreats. I was 17 years old, my senior year of band camp in Michigan. We'd go away for a week in August to a band camp. 
the pagan counselors, the university student counselors, that they, the band alumni they would bring back to our cabin, would read pornography at night after the lights had gone out in our guy's cabin so that the boys would be quiet and settle down and go to sleep. I walk in the cabin one afternoon and my bunk was right there and the bunks were around and they were sitting on my bunk and there were like five guys sitting around on the bottom bunks and they had about three or four different skin magazines open and they were looking at the pictures and talking and carrying on. And I walked in. It was a little bit of a free time. And I said, by God's grace, I mean, I'm a man. I did care, even at 17, what God would think of me and I cared about the lost souls of my buddies. And I cared about the reputation of my father, who was the pastor of a little Bible church right there in Vicksburg. And I say, get off my bunk and get that junk out of here. And I'll never forget, Dennis Watson, our tuba player, looked up at me and he said, Hey, Marceau, if it weren't for guys like you, this whole world would go to hell. I wasn't preaching. They didn't despise me. They, I, these were my friends. I got along well with them. They knew something was different. What was it? It was a Christ-likeness, even in a 17-year-old kid, by his grace, that verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 4 did not handle himself in passionate lust like the heathen. That means the lost. That's what unsaved guys do. And so Christ-likeness, number seven, is something you better care about. Verse six, he goes on, and it's a little bit hard to interpret this verse. And he says, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. This is in the context of sexuality. It is in the context of immorality. It is in the context of lust, that the Lord will punish men for such sins as we have already told you and warn you. And I take this verse to at least be talking about an unwillingness to selfishly, in my secret place, in my heart desire, and in the, in the recesses of my imagination, to look at my brother and to desire his wife or to defraud him in any sexual way. I'm not sure exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, but he's saying you cannot defraud your brother. You do not engage in an inappropriate, unlawful relationship at any level with your brother in Christ or anybody else for that matter. And that God will punish men for all such sins. Whatever it is, it's really, really serious. And number eight, I use the word selfishness. That it's all about me, it's not about you. I don't care what you think, I don't care who you are, I don't care about your relationship with your wife. You better keep your thoughts home, men. You better look appropriately at the brothers and sisters around you. Paul's instruction to young Timothy was that we handle our sist our, the sisters in Christ as just that, sisters. And he meant physical sisters. He said, the way you look at the women in the church is though they are your sisters. I don't know about you, i got two sisters, and I treat and touch and look at them a whole different way than I do my wife. And that's the way we do the church. We don't defraud our brothers. We're not selfish. Nine, you better care about the fear of God. He says in the end of verse six, God will punishment, the Lord will punish men for all such sins. We've already told you about this. We've warned you. You better care about the fear of God. I think that fear is a legitimate deterrent, don't you think? You do know that God sees you all the time, don't you? 
You do know that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3. You do know that we stand wide open. Hebrews even uses the word naked before the Lord. God sees everything. You cannot sneak on God. Even if you go back in a corner somewhere where there's no light or in the deepest part of your basement or the farthest back part of your garage, God is there. Don't you worry about that? Don't you care about the fact that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that He's right there with you? And then finally, number 10, He said, you better care about holiness. For God did not call us to be impure, verse 7, but to live a holy life. You know what that means? It's like, a holy life means that I care about what is sin, what God has defined as sin. I don't look at what the world defines as acceptable behavior. In fact, I cannot trust the world to define acceptable behavior to me. They will even legislate things that are sinful and wrong, like killing babies and letting strip clubs be right on the main street. And if you're a planning commission, you can't get dumber than that. Right next to elementary schools, right next to churches. Oh, but we have freedom of speech. No, we don't. There's all kinds of things you can't say out there. Well, that's the world. They do all kinds of dumb things. I'm talking about the church, and only the church can walk in holiness. I was thinking in conclusion about uh, a scene at Bible camp one year when I was just a little boy. And my dad used to be the dean of one of the weeks of camp at Crescent Lake Bible Camp in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Beautiful country. And there was a cabin that was the girls' staff cabin. This was family week, and all the girls who worked the kitchen crew and all the things around camp, the snack bar and everything, the summer staff, the girls all stayed in this one cabin. And, of course, the staff boys and the staff girls liked to carry on all summer and it was family camp with families there and boating and swimming and chapel and Bible time and fun games and everything. And I remember watching those boys take a snake. I assume it to be a little garter snake. In my mind's eye, it was green. I'm not 100% sure there's garter snakes that far north in Wisconsin, but maybe there are. doesn't matter. It was a little snake that they had found at camp under a rock or something. And they had this great idea to go to the girls' cabin and to let the snake in under the door. You know, it was camp in, in the 60s. Nothing was nice. It was camp camp. None of these sissy camps nowadays. <laughs> and so they put the snake underneath the door. And, and the, the imagined result happened. The, the squealing and the hollering and the fox was in the hen house. And nothing could go back to normal until they got the snake and got it out of their house. Men, listen to me. If you're dabbling in pornography, you're messing with it on your phone, you're looking at it on your computer, you got your stash of magazines somewhere, you got your favorite movie CD parts, and you hold the thing and you rewind, you know what you're looking at. Whatever's going on, your little stops on the way home in certain areas... You got a rattlesnake in your house. You got to go home 
And it's not like you, if you, if somebody had put a rattlesnake under the crack in your door and you got a rattlesnake slithering through your house, you don't just kick back on the couch and watch TV for a little while. I want to tell you something. Nothing is normal until the rattlesnake is gone. And I'll tell you something. You need to, you need to get upset about your low standards of purity as though a rattlesnake is loose in your bedroom. And you better deal with it because nothing else really matters till you deal with it. You got to stop making excuses. You got to start getting serious about these 10 things, 10 key spiritual issues, God's will, sanctification, separation, obedience, self-control, spirit control, Christ-likeness, your selfishness, your fear of God, and holiness. As I said earlier, I think it's very valuable to have some men that you do Bible study with and some accountability, but I'm going to tell you, until you get serious about getting rid of the rattlesnake in your life, it isn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Let's bow in prayer. So, Father, we need your strength. There's all kinds of issues going on in our world and in our homes and in our marriages. And Lord, we live in a world that is groaning under sin and corruption and such beautiful gifts, even as our own marital sexuality is being perverted and corrupted by perverse behaviors learned and perverse places from inappropriate people. Father, we want to hate sin and we want to love righteousness and we want to walk in the truth and so help us to engage in the battle. And Father, encourage my brothers here today, but Lord, help us to wake up and realize that you've called the church to purity. And we've got to stop letting the world press us into its mold. We've got to learn how to think according to your word and not according to the system around us. So, Father, do your work in us through your Holy Spirit. There are some guys who I'm confident would be desperate to change. and They feel trapped. Will you please show them now how to take steps for deliverance? Father, would you encourage and strengthen the marriages in our church? Protect us. Protect our little boys, Lord. Protect our little girls. Teach us how to raise them up in purity in the midst of the cesspool of the world around us. Father, we need your strength. We need your forgiveness. We need a new joy to enter in, in the delights of obedience. that we would walk in victory and that we would bring pleasure to our Lord Jesus Christ alone as we reflect His glory and as we live out Your great grace-given gospel in our lives. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.